gentlemen. Uh... Can I please have your attention? Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, I'll I'll skip the pleasantries um, and put them at the end, or, or the housekeeping stuff, and put it at the end, um, so we can get right to it with our a first time guest from one of my favorite think tanks, the Manhattan Institute, uh, Raphael Mangual. I got that right. Okay, perfect. All right, you work on sort of a. Uh, criminology, uh, incarceration, all that kind of stuff at the Manhattan Institute. And I keep getting people asking me, why aren't you doing more stuff about crime? And so I am nothing if not a servant of my people. Um, so uh, we decided to have you on. Um, this is the first time we've met. Um, where, where am I talking to you from? Where, you're in New York, I assume? I am. I am in Queens, New York, in a nice little neighborhood called Forest Hills. Nice. That's where um, Peter Parker's from. Um, that's it. That is where Peter Parker's from. Although I have no superpowers, so that's unfortunate. Yeah, I grew up, so I grew up on the Upper West Side, and um, it's something who people who don't haven't lived in New York don't really understand is that like, if you live in Manhattan, Queens might as well be Cleveland. I mean, it's just it's just sure. another place, yeah. you know. Like my dad grew up in the Bronx, and they used to talk about when they went to Manhattan, they'd say, "I'm going into the city." You know, because right. the Bronx is just a different place. I say that now. You know? Yeah. I say <laughs> that now from Queens. I'm going into the city. I mean, I'm, I'm born and raised in Brooklyn originally, but uh, I did live on the Upper West Side for a short period of time. And I got to tell you, it's my favorite part of Manhattan to live in. I lived right near Lincoln Center on 64th and West End, and it was just a fantastic, fantastic uh, time. And H&H Bagels will forever live in my heart. Um, yeah. You know, although since we're talking about crime, they did close for a good reason. Um Yes, they did. Um, and I always like to point out to people that, you know what the H&H stood for? I don't. Hernandez and Hernandez. I mean, what a country. It was two no. Hispanic. Yes. Was our, our, I, I, I don't want to traffic in stereotypes, but I'm pretty sure it was two. It's Hernandez, but it was definitely two Hispanic guys who founded the best, the most famous bagel place of the last half century in New York. And uh, That is a piece of trivia to, to hold on to. I did not know that. That's pretty awesome. Um, all right. So I guess we should sort of, jump into this. Although, uh, just in, in fairness, Upper West Side in the last 20 years is very different than the Upper West Side I grew up on because like uh, crime rates on the Upper West Side um, in the late 60s through the 70s were significant. Um, and uh, I always tell people that the original Death Wish movie was filmed not very far from my house. <laughs> um, so yeah. um, it does show you how much cities can change and how much Maybe it's changing back. So why don't we just sort of start, you know, at the beginning, um, you have a new book out um, or a book out recently on our America's decarceration problem. So why don't you just sort of lay out for us your picture of why crime rates are going back up? What is, what does the crime rate really look like? Um, and then maybe we can talk about how to fix it or what to do about it. Yeah. I mean, well, I think the first thing to do is to, just take a step back and understand why even a very common colloquialism like the crime rate isn't really a thing or a useful way to, to kind of frame the problem if you want to talk about public policy solutions. The reason for that is, is that, you know, the crime rate can vary uh, pretty significantly, even from street to street. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can just go two blocks 
in you know any given city in America, and your your public safety picture can change pretty drastically just in that short period of time. You know, and it can change with respect to different crimes, and and depending on you know uh, sort of who you are and what you're doing at the time. So, you know, we we tend to talk about America's crime problem, or you know, New York's crime problem, or Chicago's crime problem. But the reality is that crime is very very hyper hyper concentrated. It's concentrated geographically. It's concentrated demographically, and and so once we you know we start to appreciate that it that allows us to understand just how fractured a problem it is and just how unique the solutions need to be for, for any given, you know, uh, a place and time. But generally speaking, crime, you know, across the country, which is to say that crime in many, you know, pockets of urban America has been moving in the wrong direction, particularly on the violent crime front. We've seen an increase in homicides. We've seen an increase in aggravated assaults. We're now starting to see lots of cities catch up in other crime categories like robberies and grand larcenies and burglaries rapes. Uh, what that tells you is that things are, are, are not great right now. It can be significantly worse depending on where you are. Like a, a lot of people who are worried about the potential backlash to rising crime like to point out, for example, that, you know, crime's not as bad as it was in the 1990s or in the 70s. And, you know, uh, that's true as far as it goes, but, it, you know, it also depends on where you are, right? If you're in the city of Philadelphia, well, last year you set a homicide record all time, and you're on track to do that again this year, which means that violent crime is as bad as it's ever been. Um, that was true in more than a dozen American cities between uh, 2020 and 2022. So um, that's that's sort of how things are looking at on, on the crime picture. In terms of what I think is driving it, I mean, you know, it's obviously a multifactorial problem. There's a lot behind why crime goes up and down. It's, it's a relatively complicated picture. That said, I do think some significant part of the uptick that we're living through right now is a function of the fact that across the country, in, at the state level, at the city level, at the national level, for the last decade plus, we have been systematically lowering the transaction costs of committing crime while raising the transaction costs of enforcing the law, all in the name of you know justice and racial equity. And this, I think, has sort of laid the groundwork for, for the uptick that we've been living through really for the last seven years. I mean, a lot of people sort of point to 2020 as like the point in time in which crime, you know, blew up. But we, you know, after pretty significant declines and consistent declines through 2014, we saw a homicide spike in 2015 and 2016. Things leveled off a little bit, started to go down, went up again in 2019, and then big explosion in 2020. You know, I think what we've been living through those years in a lot of parts of the country is, is a function of that. But, you know, the reform movement, which is not entirely crazy, you know, which is not totally without merit, has just sort of taken the hammer to every nail that it sees and says, you know, well, we're going to, we have too much incarceration, so we're going to cut incarceration any way we can. We have, you know, too much pretrial detention, so we're going to cut that any way we can. We have too many arrests, so we're going to, you know, reduce those. And, you know, in the aggregate, that all starts to have an impact. I just want to apologize to you. I kind of dismissively mentioned your new book, and that's not how we do things around here. The book is Criminal Injustice, what the push for decarceration and depolicing gets wrong and who it hurts most. Just so, um, and we'll put a link to it in the show notes and all that. I just, I didn't realize it came out so recently. Yeah. Anyway, but there you have it. Um, so uh, I, I think the point about the, I mean, just to circle back to the beginning, um, the hyper-local point is a really good one that I do think gets lost a lot, both by the law and order types and by, I don't want to say the defund the police types, but the, you know, the, 
Uh, call them progressives. The we'll progressives, them right. The yeah, they want. Yeah. Is that I'm sure there was the same in Brooklyn growing up. Like literally one block over was a place like I wasn't allowed. I, I My grade school was on 83rd and Central Park West and I grew up on 84th and Broadway. I was not allowed to walk a straight line to my grade school. I had to go up to 86th Street because Amsterdam and Columbus on 83rd yep. was too dangerous. That was true of Manhattan for my entire life until I basically went to college was that there were just certain pockets where it wasn't safe. Hell's Kitchen, you know, was famously one little before my time. Right. But And I think this is something that, I mean, the law and order types on the right, you know, everyone wants to make the plural of anecdote data. <laughs> and, yeah. and I think social media sort of exacerbates it. As you say, look at this terrible thing that happened 3,000 miles away and you make it sound like it's, it makes it sound like it's happening next door when even if you lived in the same city 3,000 miles away, you say, yeah, well, that, you know, that's, and, and this is not, it also allows us to sort of write off certain communities in ways right. that are kind of cruel and beside the point because the people who need police protection and low crime rates the most are the victims of crime. That's exactly right. I mean, that, and that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book and framed it the way that I did. Um, you know, because it is very easy for a lot of people to see themselves as separate and apart from crime in America because it's just not something that affects their daily life. They have no real sense of what it's like, you know, to go to a school as a teenager um, and have to navigate the hallways in a way in which you're trying to avoid the very distinct and constant uh, you know, likelihood of being violently victimized by gang members in your class. Yeah. They have no idea what brutal violence looks like, what, you know, a, a puddle of blood on hot concrete smells like. I mean, it's, it, it really does um, absolutely change the framework of how you go about every day. I mean, one of the, the sort of analogies I, I like to use um, when I talk about this stuff, I mean, a lot, you, you and I are both old enough to remember the DC snipers. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember watching the news as a kid and seeing people just talk to like, you know, a man on the street type interviews, uh, talking to reporters saying that they would zigzag through parking lots um, or, you know, they would drive past the E on their gas tank rather than, you know, stopping at gas at night for fear that they might be, you know, shot by the DC snipers. Now, this was happening in some of the most elite zip codes in the United States. I mean, these are, you know, people living around the nation's capital doing, you know, uh, high powered white collar jobs, making lots of money, um, otherwise rational human beings the chances of them being victimized by the DC snipers were essentially on par with being struck by lightning. And yet these completely rational people were upending how they lived their day-to-day -day lives um, because of the psychological impact of the fear associated with what was going on at the time. And so I tell people just, you know, think back and remember that. And now imagine what it would be like to live in a, you know, a, a neighborhood where within a six block radius, you hear gunshots on a weekly basis mm -hmm. where you know multiple people who have been shot, you know multiple people who have had family members killed, you have seen people slashed ear to ear over nothing more than a dirty look. I mean, the, the psychological impact of living within that is, is something that, you know, I, I wanted to get more Americans to appreciate because that is what the downside risk associated with the modern reform project looks like. And it doesn't fall evenly on all Americans. It's not an evenly distributed phenomenon, right? If you just, I mean, New York City, minimum, a minimum, 
every single year of all shooting victims, 95% of them at least are either black or Hispanic. Almost all of them are males. Mm -hmm. Black or Hispanic males do not constitute anywhere near 95% of New York City's population. It's one of the most consistent and, you know, just starkest racial disparities in the criminal justice data sphere. No one wants to really talk about it, but it, it, it just shows how uneven that problem is in terms of whose shoulders it falls on. And so, you know, it's very easy, I think, for lots of well-meaning progressives to think about, you know, the, the harms associated with the operation of the criminal justice system in the abstract. You know, okay, incarceration takes you out of your house and away from your family and your community. But but they don't have as easy a time sort of putting themselves in the shoes of potential victims and, and understanding what that's like on a day-to-day basis. And I want to get to the the, the incarceration, decarceration stuff in a second, but on on this point, I mean, one of the problems, it seems to me, that makes it difficult to talk about this stuff, and you probably have more experience with this than I do, is that there is, not just in sort of politics, but also in pop culture, the conversation is almost always skewed towards treating, I mean, I'm not talking about like, you know, gangster rap and that kind of stuff. I'm just talking about like sort of the person who gets arrested for committing the crime immediately is seen as sort of deserving of profound sympathy and, and political sympathy and systemic sympathy and, and, and journalistic sympathy. And, um, not, I'm older than you. I remember there was a huge uproar 20 years ago, uh, more than that, where, the New York times was going after Rudy Giuliani's crime stuff. This is Rudy before the fall. And, and the way the New York times wrote up, you know, these neighborhoods was just simply to say that, um, these neighborhoods that, that Rudy was sending cops in to arrest drug dealers and whatnot. They, the times had this really unfortunate phrasing where they characterized drug dealers as simply part of the unique culture of some of these minority communities and that it's culturally insensitive, in effect, for, for Rudy Giuliani to be sending cops to arrest drug dealers in in these black and brown communities because the, the drug dealers are just a part of life in these communities, and he doesn't understand that, and blah, 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 blah. And, like, it's the kind of thing that if a right-winger had written a piece saying, well, you know, it's just how those people live and whatever, you'd be yeah. denounced as a racist, but... There's this weird sort of racist condescension that comes in how we talk about this stuff. And I don't know how you fix that until the sort of local community leaders say, hey, look, you know, we don't want people abused by the police. We don't want people wrongly arrested by the police, but we want murderers to be arrested and taken away. And there doesn't seem to be either that stuff. I'm sure that stuff is happening, but it doesn't seem to get the kind of attention and and systemic support that it needs. Am I wrong about that? No, I think there's been a, a shift away from that recently. But, you know, in the 70s, even the 60s, 70s, 80s, and, and early 90s, that actually was very true. Community leaders were, in, in low-income minority communities, were very outspoken about their support for initiatives like the one that you just mentioned. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a great book by a scholar named Michael J. Fortner called uh, Black Silent Majority. Um, and it's about the role that the black community played in developing um, and bringing to fruition uh, New York State's Rockefeller drug laws, which were the you know, sort of first of its kind mandatory minimums 
uh, for, you know, crack cocaine offenses and other things. And, you know, you can, you know, go back and into the, you know, 70s and, and early 80s and read, you know, editorials in black newspapers in Harlem and find, you know, just, you know, anger dripping through the pages about the drug trade. And, you know, take the, the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986, for example. This is, you know, in modern discussions about criminal justice, this is hailed as one of the most racist pieces of legislation because it established the 100 to 1 sentencing disparity between crack and powder cocaine offenses. What people don't know is that it was co-sponsored, not just voted for, but co-sponsored by 16 of the 19 members of the Congressional Black Caucus at the hmm. time. It passed the Senate with a vote of 97 to 3. Yeah. Um, there was enormous support. I mean, you, you can go back, and I think it was 1990, on PBS, William F. Buckley is hosting a firing line debate where he is taking the position in favor of drug legalization, and Charles Rangel, black congressman from Harlem, at one point during the debate, actually suggests life in prison for certain crack dealers. So you know, <laughs> it, it is just not the case that the black community has always or even currently um, sort of supports, uh, you know, uh, a, a sort of making space for these kinds of offenders within their communities. Right. Gallup you know, did a poll last year. It was 81 percent of Americans, uh, black Americans said they wanted as much, if not more policing than they were currently getting. What I think has changed in modern times is that now groups like Black Lives Matter and, you know, sort of outspoken activists, you know, uh, what, what Glenn Lowry and, and John McCorder like to call the people with three names, um, <laughs> you know, they now represent or, or are held forth as representing the voice of these communities. And, and it's just not true. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't speak for, for the old lady that wants to just be able to go down to her lobby and you know, and, 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 and roam through her building in peace. Um, you know, they don't speak for, for the seven-year-old kid who is absolutely terrified and, you know, of, of walking past the gangbangers on his block and, you know, is going to get to a point where he's about 11 or 12 where he's going to have to decide, am I going to be the scared nerd or am I going to just join this movement? Um, you know, it, 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 so, so yeah, I, I do think that they have been aided and abetted by our sort of progressive media establishment that, you know, wants to feel good about, you know, um, uh, living in America in a way that, you know, is, it reflects prosperity. And, and the best way I think they know how to do that is to, you know, become good allies. And the best way they know how to become good allies is to sort of elevate, you know, the angry voices that um, claim to be fighting for justice. And, you know, the reason I chose the title criminal injustice was that, you know, I, I think this is part and parcel of that effort, but it's no way to pursue justice because at the end of the day, Again, you know, the, the people who are going to bear the brunt of the downside risk associated with this project are precisely the people that reformers say they care about. And if you truly cared, I think you would be a lot more open to, you know, uh, exploring what the detrimental impact of this is. And I do think people truly care. I do think that they're well-meaning. I, you know, I don't say that to suggest that, you know, these are people with pernicious intentions, but um, they have to do better. Yeah, the, um, I mean, that, the poll you cited about wanting the same amount or more policing I probably wrote three columns about that at the time because this was at the height of people screaming about defund the police. And yep. it is, it was such a pristine example. It's up there with Latinx, right? It's this, this pristine yeah. example <laughs> of people in a bubble who, whose only sort of black friends are sociology professors at UC Davis or something and, or assistant editors at the New York times. And then the, the, the people they know on Twitter, 
And then they take from this a, uh, so when they say these, these are their official avatars of, of minority communities. And when they, they say, Oh, we want to defund the police. They take them seriously when there simply was not a single, I mean, the thing about that poll is the question it didn't ask. Like there were people who said maybe la- fewer police, right? There's a huge difference between fewer and none. You know, I mean, like I, I could get, there's probably some communities that like DC could use fewer secret service cops all over the place. Cause they're kind of jerks, but I don't think it should have none, you know? Um, and right. so this whole, that whole movement, which did real damage to the democratic party was based upon, you know, it's sort of like that, pl- the banning of plastic straws happened because some like teenage girl did a school project. And I think it was a nine year old boy. Was it a nine year old boy? <laughs> you know, give him time. And, um, you know, but my point is like, <laughs> like it just, it, it, it's like in these Petri dishes of pure saline, like the, 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 the contagion spreads so fast that you have yeah. like hosts in the, you know, like in the New York times op-ed page, they literally ran a piece saying, cause it was during the, like the, Oh crap, maybe we made a mistake by backing this idea moment. And, and so they go get this guy to write a piece. And the headline was like something literally like, Yes, we actually do mean literally abolish the police. And it's like, yep. okay, run with that. That's your problem. Um, and I, I just feels like like the country, when it comes to things like crime, I think is so poorly served by its own elites and how these conversations go forth. Yeah. Um, because there there are definitely problems on the way the the right talks about this stuff too. And but. There's there's a particularly annoying thing about the left claiming to speak for these oppressed minority groups without actually con- consulting with these oppressed minority groups to find out what they actually want. Yeah, and I, I think they've talked themselves into this be, because they believe, on some level, I suspect that even the sort of coldest hardest, you know, most dangerous gangster type that you can imagine, that for that person, it's not their fault. I think they somehow believe, have convinced themselves that on some level, you know, the most serious criminals uh, driving this problem are victims of the broader system. And, you know, they talk themselves into something as radical as defunding the police or abolishing prisons by convincing themselves that we can just use this money on social spending programs that will address the real roots of what creates these kinds of monsters, right? Uh, the real roots of what, you know, drives somebody to, uh, you know, use lethal violence as a, a means of both respect acquisition and uh, dispute resolution. Um, and uh, that reflects, I think, just a, a very deep and and core misunderstanding at the root of, of why our public safety debate seems so kind of intractable in terms of, you know, getting to a better place and, and moving the debate forward. I, and the reason I say that is because, you know, when I was writing the book, I went back and I, you know, I read some of the, you know, the, the pieces and uh, of research and, and, and books that had sort of, you know, influenced me early on in my career. And I reread Thinking About Crime by James D. Wilson. And it's like, this book could have, you could have slapped a, you know, copyright 2022 yeah, yeah. sticker on that and no one would have been the wiser, right? I mean, it was like, you know, everything old is new again. It's the same debate that we're having today. And this book was written back in 1975. 
but but the problem with you know the the sort of left's idea about this is that it reflects a sincere but mistaken belief that criminal violence is a function of socioeconomic indicators, things like poverty, um, you know, uh, unemployment, income inequality. And the reality is, is that socioeconomic indicators and violence have never tracked neatly. I mean, you can just dig through the data, cut it, slice it any way you want. It just doesn't track. I mean, you know, if you take New York City, for example, look at the poverty rate in the city in 1989, and then look at the poverty rate in the city in 2016. Um, it barely changes. It actually moves slightly in the wrong direction, uh, which means that it, you know, it goes up slightly. And why do I pick those two years? I pick those two years because 1989 is the year before New York City peaked in homicide. In 1990, we had 2,262 murders. Uh, and 2016 is the year before we hit our valley in homicides. In 2017, we had 292 murders. So you go from 2,262 to 292, the poverty rate doesn't change. Nor does it change, you know, and, that, and that's at the citywide level. And you can say like, oh, well, maybe, you know, it changed in the sort of discrete areas where, um, you know, crime was a problem. But if you look at the demographic groups that have always been overrepresented as both victims and perpetrators of serious violent crime, it didn't change much there either. Um, you know, and, and so that's, that's just one example. I mean, you can look at the Great Recession. You know, unemployment rate in the country nearly doubles between 2006 and 2010. The homicide rate declines 15%. You can look at income inequality, which grew about 20% between 1980 and, and 2000, and violent crime rate decreased significantly over that period of time. Um, you don't see, you know, social spending track with, with violent crime patterns. And I, I think one of the reasons for that is that, you know, violent crime really isn't economically motivated most of the time. Um, I recently watched uh, security camera footage of a armed robbery that took place in the Lincoln Park neighborhood of Chicago. And, you know, the guy was overwhelmed. It was like three guys. They beat him up. They took his stuff. And then they're trying to get him to give up the password to his iPhone. He initially refuses. They hit him a few times. He finally gives up uh, the password. So now they've got everything mm. they want. But for for making them go through that, before they leave, the guy with the gun shoots him at point blank range. That kind of violence has nothing yeah. to do. That's not homo economics. Economics, right? right. I mean, he's already, <laughs> exactly. I mean, you've already gotten all of this stuff. Uh, you know, you, you, the 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 shooting is a function of something deeper. Um, and and you know, and so when I look at things like the crime decline and the progress that so many cities made on that front, I have yet to hear a credible story of how the crime decline was a function of some new social spending mm -hmm. program. No one has, you know, sort of written that piece of, of, hey, you know, poverty reduction or income inequality reduction or, you know, some other socioeconomic uh, um, success story is, is why, you know, crime went down. Um, you know, I, I think if you look at things like psychological factors, you'll see, you know, a lot more of a, uh, a lot closer nexus between those things and, and serious violent crime. Uh, you know, those factors are, are far more prevalent in criminal offending populations than poverty is. I mean, you know, things like antisocial personality disorder has a prevalence rate in the general population of between two and four percent. In prison populations, it's like 40 to 70 percent. You know, it's way more common than, than poverty is in, in, in the prison population. Things like time discounting, very, very highly associated with criminal offending. It's something that you can identify very, very early on in childhood. Um, and, and just for people who don't understand, uh, time discounting is basically, you know, uh, the value that you place on 
on time. So like, uh, um, I'm sure lots of listeners are familiar with the experiment of, you know, a kid sort of being put in the room and you give them a donut and you say, you can have this donut now, but if you wait, you know, 20 minutes, you'll get another donut. Um, and so, you know, the kids who wait 20 minutes and get the two donuts tend to do better on all sorts of measures because they, they don't discount the time as, as, as heavily as the kids who take the donut, um, uh, the one donut. Anyway, you know, all that to say is that, you know, these are just all reasons to be suspicious of the sort of overarching narrative that I think drives the criminal justice policy orientation of the progressive left, um, because it, it, it sort of pokes holes in the idea that the root causes of violence are, you know, socioeconomic in nature. And I, I think the, one of the biggest you know, reasons to be suspicious of that is that the vast majority of poor people are not violent in any community, in any demographic group. And there are wide variations of criminal offending rates between and among culturally identifiable groups with very similar socioeconomic profiles. Um, you know, in New York City, you have, um, you know, uh, um, Chinese Americans and, and Chinese immigrant communities that are suffering poverty at, you know, rates that are, um, that exceed those of, of black New Yorkers by a lot. And, and yet violent criminal offending patterns are, are rates are, are much lower than in those communities, even within East Harlem. The average household income for um, a black family in East Harlem is about $4,000 more than the average household income of a Hispanic family in East Harlem. And yet the Hispanic violent offending rate, while higher than the white rate, is still significantly lower than the black rate. And so, you know, I, the, the sort of, I think the reason that the left has been so resistant to sort of questioning those narratives is that um, they're uncomfortable with where those conclusions take them. Um, which is to a discussion about the role of culture. Um, but, but yeah, I, I do think that the reason that so many sort of, you know, elite so-called representatives of low-income minority communities are so willing to propose radical solutions that, that don't actually have a ton of support, even within those communities, is that in their minds, it's justified because you can just shift these funds to other things. Yeah, I mean, I think you make a really great point about the, Poverty rate goes up, poverty rate goes down, and it does not seem to be all that linked with the um, crime rate. I think that's a, a really valuable and important point. And it kind of reminds me of, you know, I, Tom Sowell makes this point. Um, you know, he says, if you just look at, if you just looked at African-American families that, ha with, that's, that subscribe to the newspaper or had a library card, virtually all of the disparities with the average white family disappear because there are other things that, you know, and it's not because library cards immediately automatically immunize you against various social problems. It's that you don't have certain social problems if you're getting library cards. But at the same time, I, 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 I'm totally open to correction on this. And I, and I don't, I don't remember the statistical terms for this, but while you're, you're obviously right or at least I obviously agree that you're right, that low income does not predict viol uh, criminal violence, right, or crime. Can't you argue that in a statistical sense, violent crime predicts low income in the sense that disproportionately the people who commit violent crime do come from these low income Po yes. impoverished backgrounds, right? Yeah, and I think that's what, you know, sort of purveyors of, of this idea that the root causes of criminal violence or socioeconomic in nature lean into. But I, I think 
what that gets wrong is the direction of causation, right? I think you are, if you have the sort of antisocial disposition that we know is associated with criminal offending, that is not conducive to economic success within American right. society, within the institutions, you know, that you have to navigate in order to achieve economically. Um, and so you are very likely to be poor if you are also likely to commit crime. Um, it's not that poverty causes crime. It's that the same thing that leads people to um, commit crime are also very, very likely to produce bad outcomes uh, with respect to various socioeconomic indicators. And so, you know, I, I had a, uh, I won't say who it was actually, um, I, I had a, a debate recently at a conference with a gentleman who who just kept making the point, thinking that it was known that, you know, well, you don't see homicides committed in, in high income neighborhoods. So, you know, that to me, the answer is simple. It's like, well, high income neighborhoods are high income in part because the sort of cultural factors and, you know, uh, uh, social dispositions are such that, you know, it's not likely that they're going to commit crime, but that's also associated with economic success, right? They don't discount time in the same way. They don't, um, you know, uh, uh, they don't regard violence as a means of, you know, respect acquisition in a cultural sense. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, you know, that, that I think is, is, is what's, what's at the root of it is that people see that association and say, well, Hey, the you know, vast majority of these criminals are poor. Mm-hmm. Therefore, um, it must be the poverty driving this. It's like, actually, you know, I think the causation runs in the opposite direction. Yeah. And there's also, I mean, I, I don't know if it would be how statistically significant it would be, but it's, you know, let me put it this way. This is a running theme on this podcast is I'm, you know, who has two thumbs and loves traditional bourgeois family values. This guy, (laughs) one of my great complaints about certain segments of the right is they kind of want to agree with certain segments on the left and say that like traditional bourgeois values are a white thing. And I find that to be profoundly evil because the, you know, and you can argue about, you know, it's a a big, long checklist of things and you don't have to subscribe to every single one. But this general notion of, you know, you you talk about time discounting, you know, delayed gratification, right? Uh, Savings, um, uh, monogamy, uh, uh, you know, you can go through just honesty, you know, uh, delaying childbirth to after you get your degrees and have a spouse, all these kinds of things, however you want to lump them, they work for white people because they work and they work for black people because they work. And, you know, look, I mean, Bill Cosby, the man, deeply flawed human being, but like some of that, that sort of Cosby show, this is how families are supposed to operate stuff is very useful and good. And I think that one of the things that gets lost in this is that when you have communities with high levels of not just financial capital, but social capital and moral capital and intellectual capital and familial capital, it is, you still have sociopathic behavior. Um, I mean, I, I know lots of really messed up white guys, you know, in my life, but it's, you can manifest it in ways that don't involve shooting people. Right. And right. It, you're just, you're just as capable of the, the sort of antisocial or uh, sociopathic behavior as, as low income people. But 
you live in a milieu where you can express it in in douchey, jerky ways, but not necessarily criminally violent ways. And the loss of social capital at the lowest, you know, the, the people who need those kinds of rules the most are the ones who can't buy solutions to their problems with money, right? I mean, like, there are lots yeah. of rich people who can afford their sins and can afford their bad habits. They can send their kids to rehab. They can do all sorts of, they can, they can pay alimony for the rest of their lives. They can send their kids to the psychiatrist because they have the money to try and fix the problems that they've made by making bad decisions. If you don't have money to fix the bad and you don't have connections to fix your bad decisions, it's very easy to see how your decision tree ends up robbing liquor stores or something in ways that is, and it's very difficult to sort of talk about this because it sounds so sort of elitist and all these kinds of things. And my whole point is it's, it's the opposite of elitist. It's like, like the proper rules of how to conduct life are, are, Utterly colorblind and utterly racially blind. And they worked for my family. We're not yeah. like. <laughs> no, my sister-in-law who recently passed away, she was from Haiti. And, you know, the West Indians have, you know, uh, a lot more. They brought with at least the immigrants who came. And again, so it's a statistical, you know, self, self-selection thing. But they brought a lot of bourgeois. You remember the old Living Color skit where, you know, yep. they would make fun of each other for only having six jobs? Um, you know, yeah. those sort of cult, that, that, those sort of cultural problem solving skills are a big part of the story and people just don't like talking about them. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I, I, you made a really good point too, when you, you, you mentioned that it's not that higher income white communities don't have their share of sociopathic or psychopathy, you know, uh, psychopathic behavior. It just manifests itself in different ways. And there's this really uh, fascinating book called Inside the Criminal Mind. I think it was Stanton Salmonell is his first name. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's that. Uh, don't quote me on that, but I, I think that's the author's name. Um, but, you know, he, he makes this really just a fantastic point where he kind of runs through the criminal thinking patterns of like white collar criminals and like street level drug dealers in, in you know, low income minority neighborhoods. And it's just fascinating, the similarities in terms of the thinking patterns of, of, you know, criminals who come from very bourgeois backgrounds, Ivy League degrees, you know, and then, you know, sort of uneducated, um, you know, street toughs. And, and, and so, yeah, I mean, but, but the point that you make about bourgeois values, particularly with respect to institutions like the family, I think is a really important one, because when you have an intact family, you are much more likely to succeed in the socialization process of children. I think a lot of people mistakenly believe that humans are sort of born good and then we learn how to be bad by virtue of, you know, bad influences and, and examples that we grew up around. And I don't think that's exactly right. I think anyone who's had toddlers, I have a three-year-old and a six-month-old. And if you ever have, you know, day-to-day experiences with a toddler, when they don't get what they want, their initial, their initial reaction is to use violence. It's to, <laughs> to hit and to steal, and you know, uh, uh, I read an interesting paper that once claimed that one's highest risk of violent victimization in life was in a daycare setting between the ages of two and three. <laughs> I think that's probably <laughs> very true. No one thinks about it that way because the, you know, the kids that small can't really do damage. But if yeah. you define violence as like getting hit, being robbed, you know, having your hair pulled, being bitten, um, now for most people, um, you have a family structure, you have teachers, you have you know, a community that will socialize you out of those patterns, out of those tendencies. 
And by the time you're four years old, you know, you're, you're socialized. That process is, you know, sort of being successfully completed. When you only have one parent in the house, or when you have parents in the house who are very antisocial in their dispositions, that socialization process is much more likely to run into hiccups. It's much less likely to be successfully completed. And when that happens, that's when you start to see the kind of conduct disorders um, early on in childhood that, you know, the research tells us are very highly associated with criminality in later life, which tells you that the window for, you know, psychological interventions is, is much earlier than when people tend to come in contact with the criminal justice system. And I think that that opens up a, you know, a really important point because uh, one of the big critiques on the left of the criminal justice system is that it doesn't do a particularly good job of rehabilitating people out of offending patterns. And I am, you know, open to being convinced otherwise, but I am of the mind at this point in my thinking on these topics that it's just simply too late for many people. Um, you know, for a 31-year-old, you know, with five prior convictions, two of which are for felonies and 15 prior arrests, you know, the the the, the seeds have been sown. I mean, you know, there, there's just not much you can do uh, besides incapacitate that individual and, and, and hope that through that incapacitation, you minimize the exposure to trauma and, you know, um, other negative impacts associated with that person's presence in the community in a way that gives the community space to breathe and grow in a positive direction. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not a particularly sophisticated solution. Um, but I, I, I just, I don't think that we know how to reliably intervene in ways that can undo the kinds of thinking patterns that, um, you know, I think are embedded uh, within the criminal mind by the time that people start to have their, you know, repeated contacts with the criminal justice system. And, you know, that I think also makes a lot of people uncomfortable because, you know, there's, there's not a, a very clean and easy feel good solution. Just, I mean, this listener is going to give me a hard time if I don't point this out, but like the toddlers being violent thing, this is a running theme from my last book. It's a running theme in this podcast is that I often quote Hannah Arendt who said every generation western civilization is invaded by barbarians we call them children and um the whole point of parenting is to take barbarian kids with their factory preset programming and turn them into citizens and or, or decent people right citizen is the wrong word but yeah i mean kids come in with all sorts of messed up programming and um that was very well suited to surviving on the savannas of, in the Pleistocene era, but uh, less so in, in modern life. And schools, parents, families, these concentric circles of uh, civil society are the things that turn barbarians into productive members of society. And parents are the most important one, but those other institutions matter too. And if, those, if, if all of them fail, you shouldn't be surprised that bad, you have bad outcomes. You should actually be surprised when you have good outcomes. Um, and those happen right. too, right? So like, so let's, I used to do a lot of, I used to cover a lot of crime stuff years ago. You know, one of the takeaways that I was at least convinced of was that the severity of punishment was overemphasized on the right, but certainty of punishment was underemphasized on the left. That if Part of it is like, you know, you're talking about time discounting. Uh, it's also just bad math, right? It's like 
if you think you only have a one in 10 chance of getting caught, you think you can get away with it, you know, of all sorts of things. And you might get away with stuff for a while too. And, and, and if you get caught and you get let go and you get, you know, your, uh, you know, a slap on the wrist kind of thing, you do bad math from that too. Right. And so the, my recollection was, was that certainty of punishment that like you knew if you got caught, you were going to get a serious punishment for it was more effective than, um, let's put it this way. If every time somebody robbed somebody, robbed a liquor store or robbed a CVS or whatever, they got six months instead of six years, but it was guaranteed to happen if they got caught and when they got caught that they were going to get it. You'd probably reduce more than by giving someone a six year sentence. Um, because it's, uh, it's the disincentive fact. It's the, it's the, it's the confidence that you're going to have, you're going to pay a price. Um, is, you think that holds up still? Um, because there's the other argument that people just, the criminals commit a lot of crimes. Yeah, no, I, I do think that holds up generally. I, I think the research generally supports this idea that immediacy and certainty of the consequences are much more relevant in a sort of um, deterrence equation than the length of punishment. But a lot of those studies are comparing punishment lengths, incarceration lengths that don't vary all that much. You're talking about differences of you know several months maybe a year, year and a half. Um, that doesn't mean that you can't achieve significant deterrence by raising the, the punishment an extreme amount. Um, so one study that comes to mind, uh, I think one of the lead authors was Alex Tabarrok. Uh, I forget who else um, was on that paper, but they, they looked at California uh, three strikes rule. Um, and so, you know, for people who don't know, there, there are all these different offenses that you can qualify for a, a, a three strikes enhancement. And depending on the offense category, the mandatory minimum can go from 10 years to life in prison. Um, and what they found was that for people with two strikes, um, rearrest rates were 17 to 20% lower um, than similarly situated offenders with only one strike or no strikes. Um, because the the possibility of a life sentence or a twenty year sentence, you know, was was looming, and and so you know people desisted at much higher rates by virtue of that. And so I do think that we can achieve a lot by simply saying, like, okay, yeah, you're going to go to 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 prison for ten years um, if you commit this robbery versus you know probation. I think if the the difference is that big, then yeah, the length of of sentence is going to matter significantly. But in practice, you know. Um, that's not really how it works. And so, uh, you know, I do think you're right. And I think we need to do a lot, you know, to, to increase the, the both swiftness and um, certainty of, of punishment with respect to crime. It's one of the reasons I think that so many of the policing studies that look at the effect of police presence in a given area on crime show big reductions because when you put police in the general vicinity, people know like, well, there's a much higher likelihood that I'll get caught because this person who can catch me is right there. I'm not going to do it. Right. I mean, that's, you know, um, and, and, and so, so, but yeah, I, I do think that that length of sentence does get overemphasized sometimes, um, with respect to deterrence, but deterrence of course is only one of four possible, you know, penological justifications for incarceration, right? The, the, you also have rehabilitation, which, you know, again, I, I don't think we really know how to do just yet. Um, you have retribution, which, 
you know, I'm not really a retributivist. Um, that's not what motivates my work. I, I do think retribution should play a role insofar as if you fail to satiate society's desire to punish bad behavior, I think they will take it upon themselves to do that. And that's not the world I want to live in. Like, I, you know, you mentioned uh, um, uh, the Charles Bronson movie. Um, Definitely. Death Wish. Yeah. yeah. You know, uh, I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't want a lot of uh, Charles Bronson's you know, roaming around. Uh, I was in high school for the Bernie Getz stuff. I mean, like I, I remember, yeah, I remember yeah. that. So. Uh, I think that was my dad's first year as a cop. Um, but, but yeah, it was, uh, you know, I, I, I don't want to live in that world. But, but incapacitation is, to me, the most important penological end served by incarceration. When you take somebody off the street, they cannot victimize i mean unless they escape right? right but they they generally cannot victimize the people in the communities that they would otherwise be spending their time in and the research pretty consistently shows that you know for every year the typical prisoner is incarcerated you are abating about eight index felonies these are just you know the the um the eight um crimes that are tracked closely by the fbi um four of which are violent four of which are, are property um felonies but you know that's a lot in a given year um, especially when you consider that those aren't the only crimes that they're going to commit. There are non-index felonies that they might commit, or misdemeanors that they might commit. Um, just the general intimidation factor of them being in the community, right? Like, I, you know, I'm a big fan of hip hop culture and, you know, uh, uh, hip hop in general, but, you know, the Friday franchise of movies is, you know, <laughs> I think they're hilarious. But there's a character in these movies called Debo. And, um, in the first Friday, like he comes home from jail and everyone like hears about it and you know he just terrorizes the community when debo's out like everyone <laughs> hides their jewelry and like you know it's just just hates the fact that he's around and you know it, people think it's 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 funny and it is but it's it's funny because it's one of those things that's funny because it's true because it, there there is that reality right i mean when you take somebody out of a community who is a sort of consistent and persistent threat someone who is you know um you know, robbing dice games and, you know, uh, starting fights in the street and, you know, getting drunk and, you know, getting into stuff. I mean, it, it really does harm the quality of life in that community um, in, in ways that, you know, I think are meaningful um, in ways that, that show that crime has an impact that goes beyond just the immediate victim. And that's another thing that I think is a problem with how we talk about this issue just in our general discourse we tend to you know, talk about it as if the only two players that matter are the criminal and the criminal's victim. But the reality is, is that crime's impact reverberates throughout the community in a multitude of ways. It, you know, it's not just, oh, hey, like I have to go to the doctor now and get stitches because I was slashed or, hey, I'm, you know, $200 poorer because, you know, my phone got stolen or whatever. It's, you know, the, the fear, the psychological yeah. impact, the, you know, okay, well, I'm not going to let my kids you know, out past this time, or I'm not going to go shopping today because it's already late and it's starting to get dark and I don't want to take the risk. So we're going to stay home or, you know, or, Hey, I'm a business owner. I'm not going to invest in this community because there's a really high rate of commercial robberies. And so I'll, I'll open up my business in this neighborhood instead, you know, in the aggregate, all of that stuff matters, you know? Um, and, and, uh, you know, the hope is, is that if we can get crime under control. We can, Reillustrate for people why the benefits of that success uh, are so meaningful. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, the way I always put it is, you know, crime is a regressive tax on poor people. And, yeah. like, we had a, we had um, a nanny, African-American lady who worked with my, um, who, who took care of my daughter sometimes when my wife had to go to the office. And I would drive her home. She lived in a marginal neighborhood. And I would take her to get groceries. I'd take her to doctor's appointments and all that kind of stuff. And, um, but the, the ways in which crime inconvenienced her life were profound in ways that I've target hardened around. And I, I don't even like growing up, I thought about crime a lot because I got mugged a lot. I was like, it was a different world. But like, if, if, if the only supermarket closes because of shoplifting in your neighborhood and you don't have a car, Either you're gonna have to pay a lot more at the bodega, which charges, which has to charge more, um, and that's one of the reasons why they're there. Right. Or you have to walk much greater, dangerous distances, particularly if you're old, you know. And it's the it, the the sort of the preening sanctimony from like the San Francisco liberals who don't see why you should prosecute people for shoplifting at like the CVS it just drives me crazy because if that CVS closes, it's not a problem for, you know, for rich white people. It's a massive problem for the poor people who live near that CVS and don't have any other options for all sorts of things that they right. need. But, you know, so like, it's funny, you know, you're talking about, um, this was the argument my old boss, Ben Wattenberg and, and John DiUlio criminologist used to make about, you know, a thug in prison can't, and attack your sister, right? It's like, right. it can't be as a matter of ontological fact. They cannot be in two places at once. And for me, this is always like, I get the point of the phrase, better 10 guilty men go free than one innocent person go to jail. But mm -hmm. Blackstone, yeah. yeah. On a purely Benthamite un utilitarian understanding of, of the matter, that's just flatly wrong. Because 10 guilty men are criminals and criminals tend to commit lots of crimes. They don't just do it one day a year. Right. And right. the innocent guy, I mean, it sucks for him, but like, he's not going to hurt anybody in jail either. And the, but the 10 guilty guys being let free are. And again, I understand the point behind it, which is that you should err on the side of the rights of the accused and you should have a fair judicial system. And I agree with all of that, but you know, it goes back, what was it, Marvin Wolfgang? It was the guy who did this sort of seminal study in Philly in the 1940s, and he found that basically, and I believe this holds up, is that it's something like, it's it's like a Pareto distribution. It's something like 5% yeah, like of, yeah, of, of a population commits like 90% of the crimes or something like that. Yeah. Having a law, a, a, a law enforcement system that is aware of that fact would make all of the difference in the world. It's sort of like the racial profiling you get at airport. You know, people would say you need to racially profile more Norwegian 90 year old ladies to get the stats, you know, equitable. It's like, no, you really don't. All right. So, but what is your, and you, know, you debate this stuff a lot. I don't, what is your explanation for why the United States is such an outlier in terms of the, the just the number of people in prison? I mean, it's because we're also an outlier for the sort of violent crimes that are likely to land you in prison anywhere in the world, right? It's not necessarily that the U.S. is so much more punitive than, you know, say the other Western European democracies to which we're so often unfavorably compared. 
right? I mean, Germany sentences a higher proportion of people convicted of murder to life in prison than does the U.S. And in the U.K., the mandatory minimum for illegal gun possession is five years, of which you'll serve three and a half. I mean, that's a, a, a crime rarely met with probation sentences here um, in American cities. So it's just that we have more pockets of concentrated violence of the sort that is likely to land you in prison for a significant period of time if you're caught. Um, and that's true anywhere in the world. We also have, by virtue of our economic success, have disproportionately more resources than lots of other countries in the world to dedicate to our criminal justice and law enforcement apparatus. Um, you know, it's it, Brazil has a lower incarceration rate than the U.S. They have a significantly higher violent crime rate. It's not that they, you know, are just more benevolent. They just don't have the money and the resources to catch as many criminals as we do and to, you know, put them through trials in prison the way that we do. Um, so, so that's really the explanation, um, you know, and it's an explanation that people, I think, intuitively understand in the context of other debates, even, you know, progressive leftists, you know, within the context of the gun control debate, for example, will be very quick to point out that the U.S. is an outlier in, you know, serious gun violence. It's like, well, hey, that also explains why we're an outlier on, on incarceration. And so in the book, I do this analysis where I look at just four American cities and a handful of neighborhoods within those cities that, that have a lot of, of homicides. And, and I think it was like they had 0.3% of the population of England, Wales, and Germany, um, yet nearly uh, like 10% of all the homicides in 2018 of those three countries combined. Um, you know, it was like 400 and something or 470 something thousand people living in, in those jurisdictions um, compared to, you know, three countries with, you know, over 100 million people. Um, so it's, yeah, we just, we just have more of the bad stuff and, um, you know, that matters. But again, that's not to say that the United States is on the whole a very dangerous place. Right? You know, the vast majority of, of, of this country is as safe as the safest places in the world. It's just that in the dangerous places, those are as dangerous as the most dangerous places in the world. I mean, you know, take the neighborhood of West Garfield Park, Chicago, for example. In 2019, they had a murder rate in excess of 130 per 100,000. The national murder rate that year was five per 100,000. Yeah, I think the murder rate in, in uh, uh, the UK that year was like somewhere in the range of one and a half per 100,000. Um, you know, so, so we just have a lot of pockets of crime. Um, that just see much, much more of it than the rest of the country. And so, you know, uh, on the whole, it, it, it lends itself to the kinds of incarceration rates that we've seen. Yeah, I mean, this is another theme on here, which is that, you know, the phrase American exceptionalism was originally descriptive. It wasn't cheerleading. And one of the things that made America an outlier was we were much more religious than other countries, uh, Western advanced industrialized countries. And we were much more violent than other countries. We were just, we're a rowdy bunch. And, um, and that's not necessarily a good thing, but it's just, it doesn't, right. it, it's just a fact. So I stopped looking at these. Now I used to have to look at these numbers all the time. And it is, it, it was always amazing to me how enduring there's this, the, the story that a lot of people want to tell themselves about how everybody in prison is there because of nonviolent drug crimes. Yeah. It is an invincible talking point and it's been around since, and I'm older than you. It has been the, the, the staple explanation for all of this stuff 
for 50 years. And, and and sometimes it comes from our libertarian friends and our conservative friends too, because there are a lot, you know, I was at National Review for 20 years and National Review was against the drug war. And anytime I've ever looked at it with any seriousness, it's just, it does not hold up. But I haven't looked at it recently. Do you know, do you, do you know the current numbers about like, because part of it was always that if you talk to prosecutors, part of it is that, yeah, they might've been sentenced for a nonviolent drug crime because that's part of the plea deal from a violent drug crime or, and it's just, it's just a matter of fact that there are very few successful drug dealers that do not possess guns, um, you know, or use violence right. to solve some, yeah. solve some problems. But anyway, what, what, you know, what do you say to people when, when they say, oh, that's just because we're locking up all these people who are smoking weed? Yeah, I say you're just wrong. Um, you know, even if you just broke out marijuana offenses, whether we're talking about possession or distribution, I think it's like less than 3% of all prisoners in the country. Um, but the thing to understand about our incarceration data is that at least if you're using like the Bureau of Justice Statistics, you know, um, prisoner reports uh, that come out annually, the way that they categorize people in terms of offense category is based on the offense that ha that's called the top charge, right? The offense that has the highest ceiling in terms of potential sentence. So you can be convicted of drug trafficking. Let's say you had, you know, a kilo of, of you know, pure cocaine in your trunk and you were also carrying a firearm. Well, the top end of the sentence range for the kilo of cocaine is going to exceed that of the illegal firearm. Mm -hmm. And so even though you were convicted of both offenses, you were going to be listed as primarily a drug offender. Um, so the prison stats actually understate the conduct that was actually engaged in just by virtue of that simple fact in terms of how we categorize. But you also bring up a good point, which is that the vast majority of criminal offenses, of criminal convictions are achieved through plea bargain in this country, which means that, you know, either the charges were downgraded or dropped altogether, um, which means that the official conviction record drastically sometimes understates the actual conduct that was engaged in by the criminal offender. Um, so those are two points that uh, I think people often fail to appreciate. The other thing is that, I mean, drug offenders in general just don't make up a very big slice of prisoners in the country. I mean, nine out of every 10 prisoners in the U.S. are um, state prisoners. And if you look at the state prison population, less than 15% of people incarcerated in state prisons are there primarily for a drug offense. 60% are there for either a violent offense or a weapons offense. Um, and even if you're just looking at the drug offending population, you have to understand there's a lot of overlap. Right between people who commit drug offenses and people who commit other serious violent crimes. So those drug offenders, because it's just to say they're nonviolent, pretend as if these categories are static and based entirely on the most recent offense that someone's committed. But, but that, that kind of rhetoric is just ignorant of reality insofar as it doesn't take account of criminal history. Right. Right. So the, the person who's incarcerated primarily for a nonviolent drug offense is not necessarily nonviolent. And we know that because we can go through that person's criminal history. And if you do that, you're going to see other violent defenses. Right. Um, we know that, you know, 70, 75% uh, of people released from state prison in the United States who are there primarily for a drug offense will be rearrested at least once for a non-drug crime. And more than a third of those will be rearrested for a violent crime specifically. And the overlap between violent and drug crime is, is important because it also explains a lot of the disparities with respect to drug enforcement in the country. You know, people talk about drug enforcement in ways that I think are really unhelpful 
um, and in ways that reflect real misunderstandings. And the key misunderstanding that they reflect is that drug enforcement is often viewed as a way to pretextually attack violent crime because police are aware of the overlap. Right. And so there's this, you know, sort of standard kind of rhetorical play where, you know, uh, critics of the criminal justice system will point out that, you know, drug use rates are the same in the white community as they are in the black community, yet drug arrest rates are disparately high in the black community as compared to the white community. And they say, well, this is a, you know, this is a dunk. This is an own, right? This proves that, you know, that drug enforcement is racist. And it's like, well, you are presupposing that the primary end of drug enforcement is to reduce use. Right, right. That's not at all the case. If you look at drug enforcement, you'll also see that it's disproportionately concentrated in areas with high violent crime rates. Why? Because cops know that the drug dealers are often carrying guns. They're often the kinds of people that will shoot you over a social media beat. Like, you know, they are trying to get at the more um, dangerous kinds of crimes that happen to be uh, associated with the trade. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why the 100 to 1 sentencing disparity between crack and powder cocaine was so palatable at the time that it was adopted because there was so much more violence that attended the crack trade in inner city neighborhoods as compared to the powder cocaine trade in the suburbs. I mean, just, you know, uh, yeah. when was the last time you heard about, you know, a drive-by outside, you know, Garden City High School <laughs> or, you know, some, you know, uh, you know, some in Fairfax County or something like that, you know, where, where you know, you, you have lots of, of drug use perhaps, but, you know, there just isn't violence associated with that trade. And so, you know, I think people often just fail to appreciate that. And it, and it I think, just distorts our, our debate. And conservatives haven't done a really great job of kind of parrying that um, uh, in a useful way. And, 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 and so, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's a real challenge. Yeah, so, I mean, it's a good point. I hadn't thought about in those terms about how targeting drug crimes is a way to get at, at violent crime. And If I can just give you one statistic on that. Yeah, sure. There was a, in 2017, Baltimore police released um, uh, data about the 118 homicide suspects that they had identified that year. Seven in 10 had at least one prior drug arrest in their criminal histories. These are just homicide suspects. Yeah. So just to, just to give you an idea of what the overlap looks like, and also the fact that police are reporting on this just illustrates their awareness of it. Yeah. I mean, it seems to me like another thing that works that way is illegal guns, right? I mean, it's sort of like, you know, that if someone's got an illegal gun in New York, it, first of all, it's a crime in and of itself. Um, but second of all, it's sort of like the guy in prison can't rob, a, you know, rob somebody. If you take away the gun, you can't shoot somebody. And um, my friend Charlie Cook talks about this a lot. You know, the the racial disparity problem of prosecutions for illegal guns in places like New York and Chicago is um, something that you just don't get. The left hasn't really sort of focused on because they want to say that guns are terrible and evil and horrible and right. illegal guns are even worse and blah, 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 blah. We want stricter controls. But they also don't want to send the overwhelming majority of people who get arrested for having illegal guns to jail and right. well, um, and it's a, and the thing is is like it's and it, by by the logic of like the anti-racism people then gun control measure then the, uh, gun laws are just fundamentally racist right i mean there's no way Absolutely. it's just a statistical disparity is so huge yeah i mean and, and not just gun laws but violent 
crime laws in general, right? If you were to release everyone in prison for a drug offense today, the racial disparities in our incarcerated population would grow mm. because minority populations are also overrepresented among violent defenders. Um, and, and, and so, yeah, I, I wrote a piece a couple of years ago after New York State passed its red flag law and, you know, uh, Nancy Pelosi and, and Andrew Cuomo did this, you know, sort of uh, victory lap tour um, saying, you know, we're finally taking gun violence seriously in New York <laughs> years after the, the SAFE Act was passed, by the way. Um, and, and I wrote a piece basically asking, are Democrats serious about gun crime? Because, you know, we were just seeing all of these instances in which people who were arrested with illegal guns were being diverted away from incarceration, weren't being detained pre-trial, you know, were being given sentences of probation. Uh, if you were a juvenile, you were, you know, being pushed into family court and then you would pack out on the street. It's like, well, you know, gun crime is very hyper-concentrated, um, you know, just like all crime is. And, and you know, you're, you're right. In a lot of cities, it's sometimes even less than 1% of the population that drives the bulk of of gun offenses. And we could actually, I'm working on a piece right now, basically arguing that, you know, criminal control is, is much more effective than gun control because there are fewer criminals than there are guns right. in private circulation. And we could actually make a bigger impact by taking, you know, the thousand or so people in any, you know, in, in New York, for example, that are driving the gun violence off the street than we could by trying to track down the 400 million guns in private circulation in, in the United States. And, but yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a huge, um, uh, point to make because it, it it does point out I think a level of hypocrisy, but also I think r reveals an area of severe discomfort for the left, which is that you know you, you care about racial disparities, but once it comes to racial disparities in victimization and in you know perpetration of the offenses that we know no one would support decriminalizing, right? Um, you know it, it really does poke a, a giant hole in the case because. Yeah, there is an incongruity um, between the people. And, and the, you know, if you just look at the Venn diagram, right, there's a lot of overlap between sort of people who want to see much more stringent gun control and people who want to see much more radical criminal justice reform. Mm -hmm. But there's an incongruity between those two positions um, because the more radical you go down the criminal justice reform rabbit hole, uh, the more gun violence you're, you're going to get. Um, and and yeah, they, they need to be called out. There's also, I mean, I understand why for our purposes and for your purposes, we talk about gun violence, right? Because it's like a, it's a thing. But th there's a way in which it gets abstracted. And um, so when Biden went to New York a while back, you know, he was talking about how we're going to go after gun violence. And I heard Al Sharpton, you know, uh, say the other day, and he was making a good sort of semi-conservative point, which was that, you should be as outraged by uh, when police officers murder people, uh, when racist police officers murder people, right? So like the agencies ascribe to the cops, whatever, or when people are killed by gun violence. And the thing is like the guns aren't killing people, right? right you know, right, and, yeah. and they talk about it, 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 there's the, they need to rhetorically kind of separate out the agency of the people pulling the triggers from the problem of quote unquote gun violence as if it's like these guns that are out there shooting people when in fact there are people out there shooting people. And it seems to me that that, that cognitive dissonance, dissonance is going to get, it has to get reconciled at some point. Oh, absolutely. I think you're exactly right. I mean, the use of the passive voice <laughs> on this topic is, 
is really problematic. But yeah, I mean, you know, you're, 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 you're triggers don't pull themselves, right? Yeah. Like I can leave my gun on the table for hours on end. It'll be fine. Um, you know, it's really gun offenders that are the problem. Can you imagine if like a loved one was murdered and someone said, I am so sorry that social inequalities killed your spouse. You know I mean? It's like, no, yeah. no, yeah. Like, a guy named Phil killed my, or whatever, you know? Right. Um, right. But anyway, I, I could do this all day, but I've been, I've, I've been getting, um, grief from my people about how I go too long on these things. And we are, we are well past the hour mark, but, um, uh, this is great. I hope you'll come back on. I will be happy to. Yeah. And, um, the book again, I told you, cause I, I feel so bad about doing you wrong before. Uh, the book is criminal <laughs> injustice. What the push for decarceration and depolicing gets wrong and who it hurts most by, uh, Raphael Mongual. Okay. So, uh, Raphael has left the, uh, studio and, um, um, I was just chatting with him about how much I, I, I miss the criminology stuff because I used to be really into it. Um, and that's really all I got. I got, I got, I got, I got nothing. I thought I was going to like do all this housekeeping stuff, but I'll save it for the solo podcast. But if you're not a dispatch member at this point, you know, it'd be really good if you could be, you know, like I, I, I and I just want to like, obviously I don't know all the listeners of this, this podcast cause it's, it's just so huge. I mean, it just like, dwarfs like the advisory opinions podcast for example uh but uh which is a great niche podcast i don't don't get me wrong and um but like i have the ability to look at the who's subscribing to this free stuff at the dispatch versus the people who are actually paid subscribers and uh, i've gotten into the probably not great for my relationships with friends uh habit of looking up the email addresses of the people of, of various people I know who say that they're subscribers. And it's, it's interesting how many of them are not actually paid members of the dispatch community and they're just on the free list. And, um, I would hate to start outing some of these people on the podcast. Uh, but I, I, I might be willing to, um, just to, just to shame them. Um, and while I can't shame all the listeners of this, of this podcast, just keep in mind that like we what keeps the mic on and what keeps the lights on is is the the you know is, are the paid members of the dispatch community and we want more of them and if you're not one please give it a whirl um and other than that i'll see you next time no you won't this is a podcast